uh, I've planned for a number of years to uh, have a pilgrimage in India to visit the Buddhist holy places. And eventually this, these conditions came together in 2002. And I went to India with another sister, Sister Jitindriya. And we traveled with a, a lay supporter around India. And this was just coming to my mind as I was sitting. I wanted to share some, some things with you. Uh, and just to begin in, in, with this story of, of being in, on pilgrimage in the Buddhist holy places. Going to the, to the pilgrimage places and seeing the places where this human being who was you know, born and had a mom for a short while and a dad and you know, knew people, talked to people. But this this uh, this human being, this amazing human being that was known as the, who became known as the Buddha, you know, lived and walked and taught in these places. So we went as a small group, and it wasn't a it wasn't an organised group. We were just a, a small group of people, three or four of us travelling together, and we didn't follow a, a very strict order of you know starting where he was born and so on. But we went first to Sarnath, where the Buddha actually taught the Four Noble Truths. And then we went to Bodhgaya, where he was enlightened, and Rajgir, where he lived for many vases on Vulture's Peak and taught many, te- many of the teachings are from there, to Vaishali, where the nuns' order began. And then we went to, to Kushinara, the place where he died. So as we were traveling, and, and stopping at each place, we would read, we, would, we took this book, The Life of the Buddha, with us. So we'd read uh, stories about you know, who he was speaking to, who he would, the situations he would meet at that time, and teachings that he gave. And so we'd read those, and it would just bring us more into connection of, this was a person, you know, who was living there, and people met him, and had direct contact, you know, with this amazing being. So as, I, as we went to these pilgrimage places, I really developed a sense of connection and, and awe, really, of, of this uh, amazing human being. And when we went to Kushinara, this is uh, the place where he died. And it's a funny little town. It's kind of a bit of a rough little town. And the actual stupa within which there is a reclining Buddha, is, it's not a very beautiful stupa. In fact, we didn't actually recognize it as a stupa. People were saying, it's there. We were going, where? Yeah, we could just see this kind of ugly building. Right? <laughs> oh, that is the stupa. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I'd, I'd known, I'd heard uh, you know, many times was when the, when the Buddha actually died, when he was dying, um, there were his disciples around him, and they also speak about the invisible beings, the devas that came, and... And, you know, to lose such a great being from the, from the planet was, you know, such a, a huge thing that people were grieving and wailing and beating their chest with grief. And, and then it's, and it always says, and only the arahants didn't grieve, and didn't weep. So only the enlightened disciples didn't grieve and didn't weep. And I'd heard that many times before, and I'd always thought, oh yes, you know, they, the enlightened ones, they know. And they say that the enlightened ones, they would know everything that arises passes away and is not self. So they knew that really, really deeply, and so they were not grieving. 
And uh, always when I'd heard that, I'd heard it with a certain conceit of, oh yes, you know, we practitioners, we know about um, arising and passing away and, and the, you know, the, the wise ones, they didn't grieve. And when I was there in Kushinara, they had this large reclining Buddha, very beautiful gold-leafed reclining Buddha. And as I sat with this Buddha, this Buddha image, just an image of a Buddha, I found tears started to well up, and I felt this incredible sense of grief and loss that such a, a great being could, uh, you know, to, to actually have been in contact with a great being like that and then to have had to let go of that. And what an immense letting go that must have been for people. So it really, um, you know, really brought me into a, a connection and a sense of, well, this is what it's like to be a sentient being, and this is what it's like to be unenlightened. You know, we, we, we feel and we respond to what is going on, and uh, of course, an enlightened being will also feel and respond, but we'll, we'll be responding with, with complete wisdom. We're still working on it. Well, I'm assuming it's we. There might be some arahants in the room, I don't know. So, um, so I wanted to speak a little bit about grief because this comes up again and again in the suttas. The Buddha says, you know, you have this refrain, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, our dukkha. So that comes over again and again. And... Uh, in our monasteries, we actually chant that as part of our morning chanting. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, dukkha. Sounds kind of quite, quite nice. But um, when one's really present with grief, you know, what is, what is that? So we can get an idea, as Buddhist practitioners, we can read the suttas. I always think of the suttas are like a map that, that show you the terrain. And we can look at that and think, okay, well, you know, that's, those things are wrong because they're, they're caused by attachment. So sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, they're all, they're all caused by attachment. So if we're, if we're feeling those things, then we must be practicing wrong. So this is the kind of logic. And I've met people who've, who've really been troubled because they were experiencing grief. There's one woman that particularly... I was particularly touched by a Sri Lankan woman who was uh, on a retreat that I was leading in Amravati and she said to me, my mother has died and you know, some months ago and I feel I can't stop grieving, I feel this incredible grief. And my husband tells me I shouldn't be feeling grief, you know, it's, I, I, should, I should just let go, I'm not practicing right. But I can't, I can't stop feeling this grief. And when she said that, I, I felt, oh gosh, you know, her husband's telling her she shouldn't be feeling this grief, and that's actually not right. And so I was telling her, no, you know, this is what is arising in the moment. Grief is arising in the moment because of attachment to your mother, you know, and that's, that is where it comes from. But it, it's, this isn't something to be um, skipped over, but it's to be known and understood. And unfortunately, she didn't really believe me because the framework within which she was thinking was grief is wrong, grief is bad, you're not really practicing, you're not a good Buddhist if you feel grief. Well, you know, when grief arises, it, is, it arises because of attachment. This is 
this is certain. When, when any kind of suffering arises, it arises because of attachment. And in my, my own practice, where I've been fortunate really to have the space to explore, so, you know, we haven't, we haven't been given dogmatic teachings in Amravati. We've been given guidance and the room to explore our own, our own heart and mind. Now, what I've found, even though it didn't always feel like it fitted quite comfortably in the, in the suttas or in the, the way Theravada was, Buddhism was presented, what I found was that, you know, there is grief here as part of being this sentient being. And, you know, at times it arises and it's very strong. And, and if I try to override that with an idea of what I should be doing, and the person I should be, then that grief kind of gets stuck and locked and, and pushed away and becomes kind of, in a way, more solid. It almost becomes part of a personality makeup. Whereas if I can be present with grief, completely present, and feel that painful feeling of grief, which actually can become quite a beautiful feeling when you're really with it, then what it does is it leads me back to that place of attachment, that point of attachment. And I can find where it is that attachment is rooted and where this well of grief has come from. Because if I just make a, a, you know, a decision that I shouldn't be feeling it because I'm a good Buddhist, then I never actually find that place of attachment. I just override it with another idea. So the Buddha is really asking us to, to to come and have a look for ourselves, to see, to get to know what is going on here. And not only to, to look at the map, but to you know get out there and walk the journey, walk the walk, and know how it feels directly. And the, you know, the first noble truth being the truth that there is dukkha, or there is suffering, or there is stress, depending on how you want to translate it. There is dukkha. And dukkha should be understood. This is the, the, the second insight of the first noble truth. Dukkha should be understood. So what does that mean, to understand dukkha? It doesn't mean to avoid it or to uh, turn the other way or to judge it. It means, Elijah uh, Samadhi often uses the term, to stand under. It is understood by standing under it. You stand under it and you, let, you completely let it rain on you and you, you feel it. So it's not indulging and it's not suppressing. It's not running away from, it's not grasping hold of. But it's remaining present with that dukkha as it, as it arises. And then dukkha has been understood. That's the third insight. Ah, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's what it is. That's, this is the feeling of dukkha. And then the, the second noble truth, there is a cause. There's a cause of dukkha, and, and the cause of dukkha should be let go of. It's kind of obvious, isn't it, in a way? And the cause of dukkha has been let go of. So we can only find the cause if we, if we actually take the trouble and the, have the presence to stand under, to stand with this dukkha. And the, the cause of dukkha is attachment, clinging. And it can also be a sense of me and mine. It's 
cause of dukkha. And there is uh, the cessation of dukkha, thankfully. The cessation of dukkha should be realized, and the cessation of dukkha has been realized. And there is the path leading to the cessation of dukkha, and that is this noble eightfold path. So I've, I've figured that probably everyone here has, is very familiar with, the, with this framework of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And uh, so unfortunately, sometimes it is it's seen as a, it's kind of the beginner's stuff, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path. It's like, oh yeah, that's what you learn at the beginning, and then you move on to more important things. But I would say that it's really at the heart of the, of the Buddha's teaching. It's the essence of the Buddha's teaching to recognize there is dukkha, to understand its cause and to let go. So, you know, looking at the Noble Eightfold Path in relation to grief, I was just, as I was sitting, I was just contemplating this. You know, first of all, where, where you know, grief arises because of a sense, well, the first, it's got to be connected with a sense of me and mine. And in my experience, it's always the, it's almost like a, the path between what I thought things were going to be like, what I hoped it was going to be like, what I would wish it was going to be like, what I think it should be like, and how it is. So quite often there's a gap between those two places. And... Uh, you know, it can be that we just can just let go and oh, there we are, we're back to this, how things are. That's great if you can do that. For me, often the, 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 the process of getting from my ideas or my wishes or my hopes or my shoulds to where things actually are, the way things actually are, is through, through grief. And it's, it's become a, a very um, peaceful journey, actually. It's not a, it's not a troublesome journey. Because it's, I know that it's taking me to the place that is actually true. And when you reach that place that's true and you're back to where things are, to the way things truly are, then the grief is no longer needed. It's, it ceases, it subsides by itself. But it's, it's, it has a purpose. And it has a purpose of bringing us back to the truth of how things are, which is not, often, is not how we would like them to be. So, you know, in looking at right intention in the, the first part of the Eightfold Path, the right intention is, is actually, right intention is understanding the Four Noble Truths. So part of this, let's say, right, right uh, intention is recognizing that sense of me and mine you know, it's an illusion. It's, it's, not, it's not to be held, it's not to be believed in or to, to, to be held too tightly. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a knowing of that. It's like all of us who, who've had some practice, we know that this, you know, there is, there, there is no inherent self, you know, all things are arising and ceasing. We know that, but at the same time, there is this sense of self, you know, that it does feel like, I feel like there's somebody here, that probably feels different to somebody over there, you know. I don't know what it feels like to be you, but I know what it feels like to be me in this moment, or these, these elements in this moment. And 
right intention is, is keeping that understanding even if you can't be it even if you're not enlightened keeping that intent that understanding of this this sense of, of self of me and mine is a process that's ever changing and it's, it's going on now it is not a fixed reality and all conditions in this in this universe are, are in a state of flux are constantly changing so right intention is holding that that understanding so in relation to grief there's a sense of you know you recognize there's grief arising grief is present and this is a process and it's changing it is not uh, it is not me it is not mine but I don't mean that in a dissociative way but in a way that you can completely be with it because it is not me and it is not mine there's no problem you can completely be with it and right thought thoughts of non-harm, non-ill-will, you know, thoughts of loving-kindness, compassion towards this sentient being who is experiencing grief or suffering. So right thought in relation to grief. Right speech, you know, not speaking from a... Sometimes when we feel grief then we, we also want to defend ourselves or we feel very vulnerable and want to spill out everything to somebody, to, to a stranger maybe. So right, right speech, you know, knowing what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And being okay with sharing and also being okay with just being quiet with what is present. And not uh, you know, speaking from anger or defensiveness because you feel vulnerable because of grief. Right action. So, right action, it might be going to, going to be with a friend or it might be giving yourself some time to be alone and allow the mind to go into that place. Right livelihood, that's a kind of ongoing work in progress, whatever your livelihood may be. And right effort, so the right effort being the, the effort to develop the wholesome qualities that are present. So when you experience grief, for example, I just want to keep it around this theme, you know, there may be also patience or kindness or understanding or compassion because you recognize the grief that I feel is, is, is how it is to be human. And so all of those other people on the planet even if they haven't experienced it yet, will at some point experience grief. So that brings a sense of connection and interconnection. This is a wholesome quality, this quality of compassion. So if, they, you know, if you have just even a little inkling of that, then to develop that, to cultivate that. If you have even just a little bit of patience with grief, with suffering, then just develop that, appreciate it. And to, to lessen, to decrease the unwholesome states that have arisen. So, you know, we might feel judgmental or resentful or fearful of this feeling that arises. So to recognize that and to come back to the essential experience without the extra 
running commentary and, and critic, just to come back to the essential experience and to uh, you know where there, where there, where you don't find wholesome qualities to try and find and develop them. So this is also a quality of right effort. And to and even if you don't immediately find the unwholesome qualities to to look, to keep seeking until you can find the root of unwholesome qualities and root it out. And this is done in the moment, this is done in the present. It's only done in the present. Right, mindfulness. I think that's very clear, you know, to be present with, mindful of. Have the space for what is, you know, what is arising. So again, this, the, the judging mind and the critical mind can come in and say, it shouldn't be like this, and I shouldn't be like this. And, but it's actually right. Mindfulness is, is holding that presence with things as they are. And right concentration. So just last night, I, I, I found, just through a, through a correspondence I was having, I suddenly found this sense of grief arose. And uh, it was a it was a realization of oh gosh, all this time I've been thinking it's this way and actually it's that way. And and if it's that way, then I just don't know what to do. And if it's this way, I, I can think of a way forward. But if it's that way, I just don't know what to do. And uh, and it brought up this sense of grief. And I started to cry because it just seemed so impossible. And as I, was, as I was with this, I stayed really present with this experience, and, and as I was with it, I, I, I was kind of just watching, okay, what, you know, what's, just first of all, just allowing it to come through, and it's like, oh yeah, this has been waiting for a while, you know, it's good that it has the chance. And then, and then just, just kind of focusing, homing in the attention on the heart. You know, what, what, is, what is at the root of this? You know, why, why is there this grief here? What is the what is the problem actually? And then as I looked, I could see. You know, there's this really good thing that I want to do, and it's it's really good, and it would benefit many people, and I'm attached to it, and that was the problem. <laughs> I'm attached to it, and I want it to happen, and I, if it doesn't happen, it's really really a problem. And and there it was, you know, and it was in the most wholesome thing. It was it was a very very wholesome, beautiful intention. But I was holding on to it, and it had to happen. And if it doesn't happen, I don't know who I am. I don't know what's going, what I can do. I don't know. Ah, oh, okay. That's there's a lot of suffering there. And and I can see, well, it's it's really hard to let go because it's good and it's and it should work and it's and it's beautiful and it benefits so many people. And I'm attached. And I just had to keep coming back to that place. Yeah, and I'm attached. And that's the problem. And that's where the problem is. And if anything's going to destroy, you know, to, to get in the way, be an obstacle to this, it's my attachment. So, so I just wanted to share that, really, and just to say, you know, don't, don't judge these feelings that arise. They are, they are our teachers. If we really use the Eightfold Path, they become our teachers. If we just indulge in them and you know wallow in grief or whatever it is, 
then they're, they, they're not our teachers, then they're, they're um, pulling us off track. And if we try and suppress them, also they can't teach us and we're missing an opportunity. So, you know, we're being asked in the, in the practice of mindfulness to really be very honest and to come into the present with what is happening now. And it's a, it's a very exacting path. It's, it takes, it takes you know, a lot of determination and courage and eff- good effort, you know, constant effort, wholesome effort. And it is a, it is a wonderful path because you know, when, you, when you can do that, when you can actually come into presence with what is, whatever that might be, the key to liberation is right there at the heart of it. The very thing we're looking for, the very, that very place of freedom from suffering is, is right there at the heart of our suffering if we look in the right way. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And of course our, our instinctual inclination is to move away from what's uncomfortable and unpleasant and to move towards what's comfortable and pleasant. That's, that's normal. That's, uh, every sentient being does that. But that is also what keeps us caught. That's what keeps us on what they call the wheel of samsara. Moving away from this, going towards that. Don't like that, I want more of that. That's what keeps us caught. So it's not to say that we can't develop wholesome qualities. This is, this is one of the factors of the path. Of course we can do that. But it's to say, instead of, you know, when we catch ourselves doing that, moving away from what we don't like towards what we like, particularly if it's something that's arising, you know, something that's arising in the, in the heart, in the mind, try to give yourself the time and the space to actually come back to that and honor it, honor it as a teacher and see what it teaches you. So there's many, many people are trying to find the quick path. And the really quick path is just going <laughs> straight back here and being very honest. So I'd like to really encourage you to, you know, to trust that and to investigate it for yourselves and to see what you find. And to remember, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you don't come to that place where you, where you find that, that dart of attachment and you just, uh, it, it's still, um, the suffering is too confusing, then just know that, you know, that's, that's, where, that's where things are right now. It's like that. So you don't, you know, don't, it's like, it's, 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 it's again that balance where we, we're, moving towards understanding, but we're not trying to force it. It's the right effort. So this practice, you know, this, this, the Buddha's teaching in the path and practice is intended to be brought into our life, into, into every moment of our life, or any moment of our life, you can say, because it's difficult to keep it in every single moment. 
In fact, unless you're fully enlightened, you know, you're going to be off here and there, if not going on long meanderings. So, but uh, you know, it's just recognizing any moment, any given moment, is a moment where we can come back and find the key to liberation. Any moment is right here. It just takes turning towards what we want to turn away from and doing it with real integrity. So I'd just like to offer that for your reflection this evening. If anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to respond. Hi. Hello. Uh, thank you. Um, I have the question of, um, I turn away from things that I don't like sometimes because I feel that they're harmful right. to me. Yes. And so that's my question. That's a very good question. Thank you that you asked that. I appreciate that. Yes. Well, let's, you know, we have to use our discernment. So it, it's, um, it's, it's very skillful to turn away from what's harmful and towards what is wholesome. You know, this is, this is really good and important. So we, you know, we have to use our discernment and recognize this is, you know, this is something that will, that will benefit me and this is something that will harm me. And, and of course we don't intentionally go into something that will harm ourselves or others. It's very important. And that's, that's also the discernment that, that's needed when one is turning back towards one's own suffering because there are times when it's actually not helpful to do that because it's too overwhelming. And then, but then when you turn and look, you can see that, okay, it's, you know, this is, it's not the time to go here yet. And then, you know, what I, what I would do is to, is to make a, um, an environment of, of loving kindness. So one of my practices is around the heart, you know, not, to, not to ask the heart to pump out loving kindness immediately, but around the heart, which, is, which can quite often be trembling and, you know, going through all kinds of things, to create an environment of, of loving kindness around one's own heart, if that makes sense. So it's like an awareness, a loving awareness with, with what is happening. So then I would do that. Yeah. But there are definitely, you know, definitely it's, it's important to move away from things that are actively harmful. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Um, so I have a, a follow-up question little bit of a clarification from her question and um, the way and I just want to check and see if the way I'm looking at it is, is, the, is a good way so the way I discern is this helpful for me to stay with this mm-hmm. or not is based on um, whether or not there is a lot of chatter Mm-hmm. and verbiage that is going in the hamster wheel mm-hmm. and that I can't leave that talk alone mm-hmm. to get to the heart. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, I mean, definitely the verbiage is not the thing to be playing, paying attention to. That's, that's very clear. So it is, it is the heart and the direct experience in the heart. So... You know, as, as you develop awareness, as awareness gets stronger, then you can actually just let all that rubbish go on and turn your mi- mind away from it to what's going on in the heart. 
So you don't, you don't have to wait until that stops before you come here. But if it's very strong and you can't take your attention away from it, then, then do something different. But you can definitely choose to, not to stop it, because you can't always do that, but just to, it's like, oh, it's all that rubbish going on. It's all those stories and you know, it's, that, it's that hamster wheel again. I'm actually interested in what's going on here or here or whatever. So you, you turn your attention away from that and towards this and, and see what you find. So I'd recommend you know, people do that anyway, not, not with something really huge, but just with, with smaller things. And you just develop that, that dexterity of moving from the, the busy old mind that's got lots of stories and, and uh, rationales and justifications to the, the, the experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think if, when we, if we always wait for that to stop, we could wait forever. <laughs> And also, sorry, just to say one more, th- you know, also what we put our attention on, we, we feed that. So, you know, if, when we've got all that stuff going on in the mind, if we put our attention on that, it's like we're feeding it with our intention. It's, it, attention. It's getting more, you know, it gets more busy. And when we turn our attention away from it, it's, it's like it starts to get hungry, it's, it, it gets weaker, it, it loses its momentum. So eventually it, it just drops away because it's being, it's not, nobody's paying attention to it anymore. So, and likewise, when we pay attention to the, to the mind, to what is, what is actually in the, in the mind objects, then the, we, we're feeding that with attention, so it, that, that mindfulness becomes much stronger. So it's important to, to know, you know what, what, what to feed and what not to feed with our, atten- our attention. Okay, thank you. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.